this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Also, the podcast that doesn't plagiarize. Oh, no, we don't. No, we don't. No. And if you don't know what we're referring to. A lot of podcasters, this has been a discussion among, especially true true crime podcasters recently. Uh, I think it started... August 11th? Yeah, so by the time this comes out, the discussion may be old. It may still be going on. It may not be. But it's the first time we've had a chance to address it. We're going to discuss that issue a little bit before we launch into today's story. Anyone who listens to this for any amount of time knows I've been a journalist for nearly 40 years now. Mm -hmm. More than 35 years. So plagiarism is something... I'm familiar with, I've had to deal with. I don't know if people aren't, I would think people would be more familiar with it today than way back when, just because it's so much easier to do today with the internet and cutting and pasting. But maybe it's also become more standard to just cut and paste. Plagiarism is when you take something someone else has written, recorded, whatever, and pass it off as your own, But there are a lot of subtleties to it. Even if you're crediting someone, you can't use their words verbatim unless you say, I'm quoting this from blah, blah, blah. You can't sit there and read somebody's entire book, even if you credit them, even if you say, this is so-and-so's book and I'm going to read you their entire book. If you're making money off of that, you can't do that without their permission. You can't um, use people's exact words and then say like at the end or the beginning or something, we used information from so-and-so. Because you're still using their exact words. And changing one word here or there doesn't make it not plagiarism. You can't take the basic structure of something somebody's written or recorded and just change some words and say, okay, now I'm not plagiarizing. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is your information needs to be your creative endeavor. Um, you need to credit who you got information from, and you need, if you're directly quoting somebody, you need to say you're directly quoting them. Mm-hmm. And there's more to it than that, but those are the things I think podcasters are. The internet has made it, e- actually, not just the internet, the digital age, right. has made it easy for everyone. Like, how many people are photographers now? Uh, everyone's a photographer. Everyone's a, you know. Everyone's a writer. Everyone's a writer because it's easy to publish your work. It's easy to take pictures that look pretty good. But it's also easy to access, easier to access someone else's work Which, and to copy it and, without having to type it in yourself. Yes, it is. But I think the what I was getting at was people who aren't necessarily trained in a certain. People who aren't trained in a craft. Yes. Are doing it. Thinking thinking that they know what they're doing, and they're not. I mean, if you are trained as a journalist, I'm assuming that um, you would learn about plagiarism and what not to do, although there are journalists that do it. Yeah. I have had to explain, and I'm not an expert on it by any means, but I know what it is, and I've had to explain in the last month so many times to people who don't seem to either want to understand what the problem is or just simply don't understand. Why don't we talk about our process? So what we do, I'll, I'll say how I approach mine and then because we okay. both approach them a little differently. When there's a topic I like and sometimes it's one in the news and sometimes it's one I've stumbled across, what I do is I go online and online has made it much easier to research things than it would have been in the old days. And I find as much information about it as I can 
because anyone who listens to this knows I get frustrated when people are just repeating the same information over and over. So I find as much information as I can. Some of the topics I've gleaned from a lot of different sources, particularly newspaper, online newspaper sources. Some are more difficult, like Nancy Crompton Brophy was difficult because all the online sources were just repeating the same information, and I had to do some digging. Sometimes we find a lot of original information, like affidavits, court affidavits, and that type of thing. There are others, like our most recent Roy Melanson one, where most of the information I got was from a book written by Steve Jackson, but I, when I was using his words, Steve Jackson's words, I made it clear I was quoting him. I made it clear throughout the podcast I was using information from him, and then I got information from some newspapers and stuff that I also credited. So when I'm writing a script, and we both write our scripts, I'd say we go off script a little bit, but we both write our scripts out. When I'm writing, I'm very sensitive to, I'm, I don't want to use somebody's exact words. Even if I'm cutting and pasting, it's easy to put it in your own language and narrative and structure when you have to type it in yourself, when you're just cutting and pasting. And I'll cut and paste a lot of stuff, but it's so it's there for me to see. And then I use facts and stuff and, you know, put it in my own narrative structure and my own words. And a lot of cases, you know, the facts are the same. Things that happen are the same. There are going to be similarities, but you have to try to make it your own creative endeavor rather than just someone else's. And we try to credit as many sources as we can that we've used when we do them. Yeah, and I'm I'm a little different because I do not have a laptop that I like to type on, and I don't have, I have an iPad. So a lot of times what I do is I uh, print out most of my source material from the internet. I don't do any copy and pasting at all. Wow. I always type it out. I'm a very fast typer. I used to be a secretary or, or uh, administrative oh, assistant. Yes. Um, um, I'm not as fast as I once was as far as typing, but uh, so I... What I do is I gather all the stuff. In some ways, I need to have the physical piece of paper um, that I can write on and highlight and stuff. That's how I do my research. It's hard for me to do it, to have a bunch of files. I just can't. I have to have them all in front of me. So I print out a lot of stuff, and I waste a lot of paper, I'm sure people think. The younger generation, they don't like to print. Sometimes it's easier to focus on stuff when it's hard copy. For me, it is, definitely. Me too, definitely. When I write my script, I try to, in the script, credit things as I go. And I feel like this most recent script, when I was going through it, that I think I did it a lot more than normal. And I think it's because I'm sensitive, sensitive yeah. to it with all that's going on. I try to get as many different sources as I can. And as you know, in some of them I've gone to, um, I do the microfilm because um, stuff isn't online there's nothing find. like going back to those original newspaper stories no, for honestly older stuff. but the other thing is some of them i do like the um the pleasant point one yeah uh that one i i relied almost all of it was on colin woodard's um series because a lot of this stuff i wasn't able to access and i did give him credit throughout and you didn't use his words i did not use his words I did use the quotes that he had in his story, and I did credit him 
Um, and I hope I credited him enough, and I also recommended that people read his right. series because it was much more in-depth than what I did. I basically summarized it, and I told people I was doing that, and I think we can get into it more when we talk about the specific plagiarism case that people are all talking about, all the podcasters and podcast fans. But the problem with it isn't just that you're taking somebody else's you're copying somebody, but you're not even saying where you got it. You're saying that you wrote it. Right. Um, it, you're lying. Right. And you're, you're stealing I and mean, lying. We did, we do write our scripts. Yes. Ourselves. Yes. We're not reciting something that somebody else wrote. And we're we not reciting even Wikipedia or something. We're reciting something we wrote that yes. came... But the foundation of it is information we got from other sources. Yeah, it's basically like like you're writing a research paper for school. Like I was I was saying that to Mo earlier. That's how I approach it. When I used to write research papers, you get the information, you put it together into some kind of a narrative that you can present to somebody, and that's what we're doing. We're not usually we're not going out and interviewing the people right. ourselves. We're not writing a news story, right? Like Mo has has done her whole career. She's not she's right. not writing her own. She's not creating her own news story. She's not going out and interviewing all these people. She's getting information and and we're yeah. assembling it and rewriting it into our own narrative. Right. But we're not saying that we're the source of the information. Right. We're not we're not the investigators or the journalists who are going out talking to people. And one thing in journalism too that I don't think even a lot of reporters understand, if a journalist gets a unique quote, if someone tells a specific journalist something that they haven't said in basically the same words to someone else, you need to credit that original source. Like on my job now, and I try not as a journalist to draw from other newspapers or anything but to use my own sources, but say if someone tells something to, say, the New York Times, and you're quoting that, and you're a journalist writing a story about the same thing, you see that quote you have to say, as, you know, Susie Smith told the New York Times, blah, blah, blah. You don't make it sound like Susie told you. Yes. And it's it may be a subtle thing, but then there are a lot of subtle things to creating any kind of narrative, whether it's an original one as a journalist or more of a research paper type one. There are lots of little subtle things, and it goes to, and we can talk about this more in a minute too, but it goes to... Be, you have to understand the craft. You know, as Bob Dylan said, know your song well before you start singing. I was trying to think of an analogy that somebody might understand a little better than writing, because especially with nonfiction writing or even like what we do is basically we're reporting. We're we're doing a research paper. Yeah. And, and trying and to make it entertaining. I think that people d that don't do it themselves, it's hard for them to understand what's the big deal. And one of the things I read a lot from people was things like, everyone's using the same facts. Mm. You know, how can you say it's, it's plagiarism? So I was trying to think of something that maybe would be something different that you might understand. So I was thinking, like, for instance, if you're a, an artist and you're in a drawing class, say the professor set up a still life or something for everybody to draw. And there's a bunch of students in the class and you're all drawing. 
drawing the same thing. And you and the person next to you have almost the same vantage point, and you're both drawing the same things. Your drawings are going to look different, even if the person and you are in almost exact the same position and your drawings have the same vantage point. They are going to be two different drawings, even though they have used the same, you're going by the same source, because you're two different people and you're doing it a different way. And if that person for some reason didn't like his drawing or something, you know, took yours and made a color copy of it and said it was his, that would be wrong. Right. Even though you both use the same source. Yes. Or people who watch a cooking show. Say one of those cooking shows where everybody gets the same ingredients mm -hmm. and has to make a dish, uh, and all the dishes come out different. They're using the same ingredients but their dishes come out different and you're not going to take the what the person next to you made and say, oh, theirs looks better than That's what I came mine. up with, so this is mine. Let's talk about the specific, and I can tell you what the... Yeah, for what, people who are familiar. Set off, the specific one we're talking about that everyone's been talking about is the Crime Junkie show. And what set it off was... A, which was the number one number one, crime And I think it was number one podcast. podcast. Overall, I know it was true crime. Ashley Flowers is the woman that uh, narrates that show. I listened to a couple after the controversy. She says, this is written by me, Ashley Flowers. She says that at the end. Well, she got a... Which a, is something we never... We, we never said. I thought, I, yeah. you know, I never, it never occurred think, to me, yeah. frankly. On her Facebook page, apparently, this post has been deleted, but people took screenshots of it. Kathy Fry, who is a reporter with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, uh, had a series on a crime that had to do with a uh, victim named Casey Woody. A written series. A written series. And it was on the uh, Arkansas Democrat Gazette's website and she had a pretty long post, post <laughs> that that said that some of her, the things were taken word for word quotes that she had gotten as a reporter from people involved in the case were used as if the, the Ashley Flowers had interviewed them and she was frankly pissed i think the way she found out was her daughter and she were going somewhere and her daughter they were listening to a podcast happened to be this one and she was like that is my fucking work she was pissed and she called out ashley flowers and now we found out from other podcasters that this was not a unique situation yeah right she had done it before but other people hadn't called her out and as i said to becky when we first started talking about this it doesn't surprise me that a journalist would call her out because journalists are maybe know more about plagiarism are very sensitive to plagiarism and if that's a series kathy fry did she worked her ass off she says and a lot of work went into it and somebody's taking it and and i want to make it really clear to anyone who who doesn't understand the issue plagiarism is stealing yes it's it's not oh it's not a big deal you are taking someone else's work passing it off as your own or at least letting them do the work for you and not crediting them and in a lot of cases making money off of it but even if you're not you're stealing something that someone else created it's like taking a a painting that someone painted and saying oh i painted this yeah and stealing it from Which them people have done before yes so it's not oh it's not a big deal it's stealing and it hurts the credibility of anyone who does anything creative anybody who podcasts anybody who writes if people just shrug off oh 
it doesn't matter if someone else did the work and someone else is passing. What's the big deal? I enjoy the show, so whatever. Right. And um, I think it's kind of ironic that people who are into true crime, and therefore I would think get some kind of satisfaction out of hearing criminals outed and, and justice done in a lot of cases, it would be so cavalier about somebody else committing what is a crime. Well, and the other thing is this podcast, Crime Junkie, makes hundreds of thousands of dollars I'm astounded. a month. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you think a reporter for the Arkansas Democrat My guess makes? would be... Um, Less if than she, 50. If she makes 40 grand, she's doing okay. And she's worked her a year, a not a month. hard job. Yes. I mean, I'm not just trying to make it all about money, but come on. So but I wanted to say. But, but let's also, um, do you want to talk about the reaction? Oh, well, this is just a one of them. I gave up. I saw this post around the time it happened. Someone wrote, Welp. My favorite podcast is being slammed for possible plagiarism. So I guess there goes my entertainment. And someone else wrote, what? And this person wrote, crime junkies under major fire for right now for plagiarism. And the other person wrote, no. And then had a uh, one of those little emojis with the tears like gushing out. Yeah, the ones that you mockingly send I me. Like I like them so about. much. And the other one said, I know, me too. And had the gushing tears. I have a hard time thinking Ash would do it on purpose, but I guess in her own words, you never really know anyone. And then I had to jump in and said, plagiarism is always on purpose. Ignorance is not an excuse when it's your living. And the other person said, no, it's actually not. Also, in no way did I say it was okay, so don't be snarky. <laughs> I didn't think you were being snarky. And I wrote, I'm also, I'm always snarky. And then I wrote, then I said, and stealing is never not on purpose. A person knows when something does not belong to them. When you use content that someone else has created, you know you haven't created it. When you don't give credit and pass it off as your own, that is intentional and that is plagiarism. Yeah, and I want to say to that point, if she didn't say, I'm intentionally going to take someone else's work and pass it off as my own. She's still at fault because, and I admit, I've never listened to Crime Junkie. I think I heard a little bit of it once and just, it wasn't my style. But I've come across a lot of people as a writer and as a journalist and other things who want to be in the exalted position whether it be a writer or whatever, without doing all the work, especially my fiction writing. I've seen this as an editor of fiction writing. People want to go from A to Z without going through the rest of the alphabet. I'm not saying that Ashley necessarily did this, but my view is it's a possibility. I want to be like, you know, the My Favorite Murder Women and this people and that people and have a true crime podcast. And how do I go about that? Oh, here's some information. I'm going to read it. If you don't understand that taking that information and passing it off as your own is wrong, there's two issues. First of all, you're really ignorant about plagiarism. You're also ignorant about the craft that you'd like to master. If you're going to be a writer, if you're going to be a podcaster, if you're going to be a painter, whatever you want to do, if you want all the glory that comes with that, you have to understand the craft and understand the work it takes And I've tried to explain this to writers I've edited when I was a freelance fiction editor. You don't say, oh, an editor's going to fix all my bad grammar and punctuation. You have to understand it. And granted, our podcast is not one of the top or middle or any ones. And people may have a lot of issues with our lack of production skills. <laughs> 
But before we started doing this, we did a lot of research about how to do it, what would go into it. And yes, we're hampered mostly, I'd say, by lack of time and resources. But we didn't just say, oh, let's do a podcast, plug in a microphone and start doing no. it. I think if I hadn't known how to write, how to research and write a script, I would have found out how to do it. It never would have occurred to me on any level to take someone no. else's work, read it, and think that was okay. Uh, it's, never, it's never occurred to me ever. And so whether she did it intentionally, maliciously, or whether she's just ignorant, and I don't know how you can be an adult in the creative world and not understand what plagiarism is. I don't give a shit. You can be one of those listeners out there saying, I don't understand what the big deal is, but I don't understand how you can be in the industry and not understand what's right and wrong. And I've heard this in the conversation. Well, she was the top podcast and she made a lot of money, so blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that doesn't excuse what she did. Just because she was successful doesn't mean that what she did, that the end justified the means. And I'm a little concerned that apparently a number of podcasters going back even a year or more realize she was plagiarizing them and I understand how hard it can be to step forward and maybe again as a journalist I'm you know you get used to negative reactions you get used to having to be a voice where other people don't want to step up but I'm a little concerned that nobody called her out before it doesn't surprise me that a journalist called her out I understand how hard it can be to go against the tide especially the tide of ugly social media and I have heard people shaming the ones that didn't call her out like well, why did you stay quiet I don't think then? they should be shamed because no, that's just no. like asking a rape victim why no, she didn't I, and I understand report why, and it. I understand their trepidation and, and we listened to let's talk about taco about I'm sorry I can't <laughs> I can read it I can pronounce true crime with Esther oh I can't remember her last name now and two other podcasters, I should have written this down, but they were talking about how they discovered at various times Ashley had used their work, and they all felt, or at least a couple of them felt to some extent, that even though they have fairly successful podcasts, hers was so big that they wouldn't be heard or listened to. And I think a lot of people in a lot of different situations, there are lots of crimes against a person where the person is like, if I complain about this, it's just going to be more shit heaped on me. And I think that's how they felt, and I don't blame them for feeling that way. And I think maybe one of the reasons Kathy Fry was able to call it out is she's a journalist with a job at a newspaper, and she probably couldn't give two shits about what internet trolls in the podcast world are and saying about And she also has her. the backing of a legal team from of her newspaper yes. that's going to come down hard, <laughs> yes. especially on someone that makes a couple hundred thousand a month. Uh, it's one thing if it, some little shitty podcast like us, they'll just say, look, cut the shit. Right. But if, you, if you're making that much money, you're, you're more vulnerable. Right. And, for a lawsuit. Right, you are. And your reputation's more vulnerable. And I think a, a lesson out there to people is not only when you're listening to podcasts or if you're creating podcasts, but also just as you're taking in information that's around you is to be critical of the source to, to try to understand where the materials come. There's another podcast, and I don't want to say what it is, because yeah, I'm going to say something negative that I, I've been listening to that I kind of enjoy. And they tell it in a narrative style that's almost like you're reading a book or something. And they do give quick credit to some source material. But when I'm listening, 
I can't help but wonder whose words they're using. And in fact, there was one that I was listening to that's something I'm fairly familiar with that a movie was made of that was one of my favorite movies that I've seen. It's a not a very significant movie, but it's one I've seen a number of times to the point where I know a lot of the lines. And granted, the movie was based on a newspaper or a magazine article that was based on a true story. But I'm listening saying, wow, that sounds just like the movie. And it, and this was before this whole thing started. And I'm wondering, or at least before I knew about it, and I'm wondering to myself, so did they just take that all from the movie and put it in their podcast? I don't know if they did or not. But because of the way it was written, and it's like this narrative where it's almost like a book, and then they don't really credit, they credited the magazine article, or mentioned the magazine article, but I'm like, this is a two-part series that's more than an hour for each part. Where did the information come from? And and is this written? And I think they credit a writer but, wow, that sounds just like the movie to me. I think that when you do credit things, you need to be specific. Because I did listen to a couple crime junkies because I wanted to... I listened to cases that we had covered. and Before I was she did, I just want to We point. covered them before Crime Junkie covered them. And I was curious, frankly, to see if they were similar or if anything stood out to me. Because why not? But I found that when they did credit stuff, it wasn't specific. They'd say a local newspaper said blah, blah, blah. Well, And what? why say a local newspaper? Or the local TV news said blah, blah, blah. Well, say what station. Say right. what paper. It's not right. that difficult. In both of the cases that she did, that we did, Todd Colehep and Chandra Levy, are things that had been written up in a number of papers, and I think in our versions we credited specifically i got some especially tag cole had some really good information from i can't remember the name of the paper with the greensboro you know <laughs> newspapers in the carolinas in arizona chandra levy a lot of washington post stuff and i haven't listened i still have those scripts somewhere on my computer and i haven't listened to and that's another thing i do have all my scripts i don't necessarily keep all my um the printouts i do of my you know, if somebody challenged me, I'd probably have to recreate that. Sometimes I keep them of my source material. Right. And we put on our website more stuff. It was more to put stuff we think people would be interested in to go to. We don't really put all our source material on it. And we're kind of talking about whether we should do that or whether we should do show notes with our source material. But, I know this sounds like a lame excuse. It's, it's a lot of work to do that. But having said that, we do But we do credit script, in, the, in the script. Which we, do. we always have from the Yes, from the, from the beginning. It and would, it's something that I never really questioned. It would doing. never occur to me to not do. I'm not trying to like blow my own horn or something. But frankly, from the whenever I started writing papers in school, I, it would never have occurred to me to not do my own work, and whether good or bad, and I think part of it's a matter of pride. If you think you're a good writer, you don't want to use somebody else's right. work. But also, I just it just didn't occur to me. Well, because it's wrong. I know, but, <laughs> and but people do it. And it's funny because we were talking about Rosie Ruiz um, died. Oh, you know, she died like last week, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. But Actually, she died a while, more time, but somebody finally figured out oh. it was her because she was going by a different and name. And she's the one that, it was. they said the Boston Marathon, but it was, it was the no, New York no, Marathon. It was, no, it was the 1980 Boston Marathon. The Boston she Marathon. got on the T um, and just ran the last six miles. I remember when it <laughs> happened, and I mean, as somebody who, believe it or not, has run the Boston Marathon, there are a lot of measures in place now, including electronic mats every... Um, 
every 5K that you have to cross that show that you were there because of what she did and her intention had not been to win she didn't realize she timed it wrong Uh, so her intention had not been to win quote unquote win but when she did win she kind of went along with it and actually this woman Jacqueline Garot from Quebec was the actual female winner and women hadn't been allowed to run for that much longer but people were suspicious from the beginning I remember and and it's part of the thing where, and maybe we should, I should do Rosie Ruiz sometime for yes. this podcast, but it's one of those things where someone wants to say, ooh, I ran a marathon yes. without actually running a marathon. I ran the Marine Corps Marathon one year in Washington, D.C., and there was a group of people from a running club that guaranteed you would finish a marathon. I think it was from Toronto ah. or somewhere. And one of the things with the Marine Corps Marathon is there's that bridge, the one the plane crashed into mm-hmm. in the 80s, not during the marathon, <laughs> that you have to cross it by a certain time. And believe me, I'm a, a fucking slow marathoner. I finished that, I think, in about five hours. So you have to be really slow. But before you go over the bridge, there's like the six-mile loop through yeah. this parking thing. And the people, so that they would quote-unquote finish whatever before the bridge closed, the, their coaches or handlers had them skip that six-mile loop. They were, um, when it was discovered, there are a couple hundred people, I think, they didn't run the marathon. They got their, No, they ran 20 miles. They got their thing yeah. taken away, right. But they were all like, and a lot of other people were like, what's the big deal? Oh, they worked so hard, they trained oh, so hard, Jesus. and they did run 20 miles. Well, I'm fucking sorry. Fat old me actually ran 26.2. Yeah. You don't get the medal, and you don't get the credit, and you don't get to go on the official results and every other fucking thing if you didn't run the 26.2 miles, or at least run and walk. I ran slowly, yeah. but because one of my goals was always to run. If you didn't finish 26.0 miles, no, you didn't run the marathon, so you're not a marathoner. That's right. You know, and we could go on. But I think, we made I think we've point. made our point. And if you still don't understand what plagiarism is... I don't know. It is stealing, and I actually feel really... it is a big deal. I've worked at places where people have been fired for doing it. Not only people who do it, but people who think it's okay should be ashamed of themselves and should question what it is they're trying to get out of a podcast or a book or whatever, what it is that's so important to them about that that they would excuse it. And No, I'm not even talking... I'm talking about the fans, too, that... It's not like we have a smorgasbord of ethics that we can pick and choose from. It's funny how I've noticed the self-righteousness. It's like the people who are supporting plagiarism are more are so self-righteous about it. And it's like, how can you be self-righteous about supporting something that's that's stealing? that hurts other people that and it hurts people's pocketbooks when you go on like google and find like a pdf of one of my mystery novels i don't sell a ton of books i i can pay some bills every month with my royalties but i'm not making a living on them yet but when you go and get a free copy of one of my mystery novels rather than paying the friggin four dollars and 99 cents on kindle or more for a paperback or more for an audiobook not to plug my books here but (laughs) <laughs> you are you're taking money out of my pocket. 
You're putting your fucking hand in my pocket and taking it out. When Ashley, who's making hundreds of thousands of bucks or whatever from her podcast, uses Kathy Fry's Arkansas Gazette article, she's hurting Kathy Fry and Kathy Fry's publication because they put a lot of resources and work into doing that, and now she's presenting that work as her own. Instead of people going to Kathy's thing and reading, and not to even mention just the, but just the people that Kathy formed relationships with and interviewed, and that whole that whole dynamic. Right. And there's one more point I'd like to make that I think is important that um, I didn't, and then maybe we'll go on to your non-plagiarized topic for today. At all. But when I was listening to Let's Talk About True Crime, the episode where they discussed this, towards the end. Esther mentioned that some of the episodes that have been taken down from Crime Junkie were put back up with credits. And we didn't even get into the, the bullshit explanation, but the bullshit. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh. Um, but Esther said the audio was exactly the same. And both she and one of the other people on her show said that there was stuff taken verbatim, like both of them said, at the beginning of the episode, it was only a little bit, and it got more and more, and then there were things verbatim. Well, even if you credit, she didn't, when they put it back up, she didn't credit Esther or Esther's podcast. She credited sources that Esther had yeah. used. Didn't mention Esther's podcast, but she was still taking words, lines, verbatim yeah. from Esther, which means that it's still plagiarized yes. and shouldn't be up there. She would have had to rewrite yes. every episode that was taken down would have to be totally rewritten and re-recorded yes. for it to be proper. And one of the guys on that said the one he that was plagiarized from him almost verbatim hasn't been taken down. So, so. so it's like the problem wasn't even solved. Ashley's or her production people or whatever, their excuse was that they always credit, which they don't, um, that some of the source material could no longer be found. Which is bullshit. And I thought it was bullshit. And then they also said this on Esther's podcast that the source material wasn't up in the first place. But if they go to like their podcast that have links to the sources, it's still there. It's a bunch of, it's, so the whole excuse is bullshit. It, it's, yeah. not an, it's not an excuse. It's, it, there's no... It, there's no... It's it's laughable. What it is is blowing smoke because yeah. they know that the huge amount of their fans out there and the he public yeah. at large, A, doesn't give a shit, and B, doesn't understand. And so if they give an excuse that sounds like, you know, maybe before they she didn't get what she was doing, but she sure as hell should yeah. get it now, and the problem she still isn't solved. educated about yeah. it. Yeah. And I wanted to bring up my favorite murder because they had, it wasn't even as bad. Uh, Karen did a... She usually gives credit uh, to what she... Because basically they're a comedy show. And she kind of rehashes stuff she's watched on TV or... Or and read she, about. Uh, and she usually will say, I read this article and blah, blah, blah. And, and um, I can't remember which show it was. I did listen to it. It and, was well over a year ago. Yeah, and she uh, didn't really give... She, she used stuff from somebody's article yeah, and, and she, didn't give him she credit. She didn't give him credit. And he complained. And to their credit, they were very... Apologetic. They were very. They apologetic. were embarrassed. Karen was embarrassed. Karen was uh, was kind of mortified. I felt her pain. I think I, she. I, could... I, I think she was. 
sincere, and they have done better since then. So that's the kind of apology that you need to make. Right. You have hurt somebody, and she... Right, and not just apologize, but fix the problem. Yeah. And Crime Junkie has done neither. And with all their listeners, I'm sure... to ones that I gotta look again. Well, I'm gonna listen to Todd Kolhep and Chandra Levy with my script out. I think we're so small that she would have really had to stumble (laughs) deep into the weeds of the jungle to come across our podcast. I do, when I've written something myself, have the ability to know it was mine. Yes, I do too, or not. Okay, so now you have an interesting topic. I will say, too, that our main-based ones, since you can pretty much bet our main-based ones are... Not plagiarized. Yeah. Because no one else has done them. But anyway. Okay. Yes. Oh, and and I'm going to play the, even though this isn't a mini. Oh, the main. We need to play our main mini theme song. Yes. And speaking of sources, my sources for this show or this episode were mostly local newspapers of the Portland Press Herald, the Weekly Forecaster, the Bangor Daily News, and the Brunswick Times Record. Except for the Bangor Daily News, all those three are basically the same newspaper right now. Yeah, I know, but... But back then they weren't. Also, uh, various websites and court documents, which I'll I'll cite as I go. Excellent. On May... Way to not plagiarize. (laughs) <laughs> and give credit. On May 22nd, 2015, Stanford Brown died at age 95 on his farm on Greeley Road, North Yarmouth, Maine. According to his obituary in the Forecaster Weekly, he was born in Cumberland, Maine, and he went to Cumberland Schools and then the Greeley Institute, which is now Greeley High School. Ah. He did a lot of jobs in his long life. He started out working for the state of Maine as a road worker. During World War II, he got a job as a welder at the South Portland Shipyards, and his obituary didn't say why he didn't serve in the war, so I'm not really sure. Although he was born in, yeah, he would be been in his 20s, so I don't know. He worked at the J.J. Nissen Baking Company in Portland, and earned a plum, which is actually right down the street from where we are now. Where we're sitting. You can all smell it if they were still making bread there. Oh, God, I used to smell it every day. It's now office condos. Now, there's got some brewery or something. A lot of things. Like a hipster brewery. I've written about it. He earned plumbing and electrical licenses while working there. He and his wife, Helen, started a business, Brown's Plumbing and Heating, which they ran from 1954 until Stan's retirement in 1990 at age 70. What Stanford Brown was best known for was his final career, which he started after his retirement from his plumbing business. On his farm on Greeley Road, he started Brown Apiaries. He had a shop that sold beekeeping supplies to other beekeepers. He also sold honey, of course, and beeswax candles and stuff like that. Ah. He ended up becoming one of the state's best-known apiary. Is that a beekeeper? Apiarist. Is that a beekeeper? Yes. Well, I I get it mixed up with aviary. Apiarists. He was well-known throughout the small beekeeping community, serving as president in both the Maine Beekeepers Association as well as the Cumberland County Beekeepers Association and other offices in both those groups. The public knew him as well. He ran a beekeeping booth for years at the Cumberland County Fair. He taught beekeeping for 4-H and the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and also adult education classes at North Yarmouth Academy. 
He had many accolades and awards for beekeeping, and everyone who knew beekeeping in the state knew Stan Brown. When he died, he was the oldest living beekeeper in Maine, possibly the entire United States. Wow. Of course, he'd been doing it much longer than 25 years. His love of bees started when he was 12, and he kept bees his whole life. He did it long before it was a thing, which it is now. Which well, is good that it is it's now. It's good because they're dying. We need them. Yeah. I, I, in fact, after doing I research for this. I have a little bee this, house. I know. I felt, like, I felt like after doing this, I felt like I should have a bee house. I got a little bee house and, and put it on the side of my house. Oh, that's nice yeah. of you. And he was the one everyone went to for advice. In October 2011, the Huffington Post had an article about Stan and how his almost lifelong avocation started while at 12 he was mowing his grandmother's lawn and came upon a cherry tree with a swarm of bees around it. In Stan's words, I was face level. I wish I could do a main accent, but I'm not going to. I was face level. It, the swarm, was 15 inches long and I didn't know what it was. Then it come to me they were bees. I found an old wooden apple box in the barn and shook the swarm into it, then put boards on top, and when done mowing, I took it home. Wow. Back then in the early 90s. Wow, how do you even do that? But listen, that's okay. what they do. They catch swarms. Uh, I, I learned a lot. Mm. this. Back then in the early 1930s, Stan couldn't find anyone in Maine who sold beekeeping equipment, so he ordered a kit from the Walter T. Kelly Company, which is a beekeeping company. Mm. Started in 1924, they sell beekeeping mm. equipment. So he must have found that on around. The, he must have found that on the internet, huh? From yes, <laughs> ha ha. From there, he started building his own boxes for hives and reusing them many times, which a lot of beekeepers do. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't need to remind you that there was no internet back then. <laughs> The only way a person could get information was from books, which is what Stan did until the 1950s when he started going to meetings of the Eastern Apicultural Society, which is a beekeeping organization started in 1955. And then in 1978, he and his wife Helen formed the Maine State Beekeepers Association, which, as I said, he was president. Stan and Helen had four daughters and a son. The son, Robert, had been the only child interested in beekeeping, but he died long before Stan did. Another daughter, Patricia, also died before Stan. The remaining three daughters, Sandra, Kathleen, and Anne, had no interest in beekeeping or the business. I read a couple of confusing things, but I think Helen, his first wife, died in 1999, and then he had a second wife, Kitty, who died about 2008. Stan was an advocate and a practitioner of bee sting therapy. Mm. and claimed the thousands of stings he'd suffered through the years helped keep his arthritis at bay. Wow. I read this in the main... Kind of like an acupuncture kind of... Yes. Well, it's the venom, too. Mm. I read this in the Maine State Beekeepers Association newsletter. They had an article about Stan Brown's 90th birthday in 2009. Mm. They showed a cake that somebody had made. Did it look like a bee? Um, It looked kind of like a beehive, and it was like a honey cake, and it had little fake bees on it. Ah. Hannah thought it was cool. The Huffington Post article also talks about Stan's bee sting therapy. Stan was tending a three-box hive in an orchard, which was about 100,000 bees. Mm. It fell over... (laughs) And Ow. he was stung 150 times below the waist. Ooh, ouch! <laughs> below the waist, day. Eh? I saved the queen, he said. That the queen is very important. Yes. Since then... Even I know that. Stan told the Huffington Post, I've administered bee sting therapy since my 20s for lower back problems and used honey to heal wounds. I've also stung thousands of people for arthritis, including a 63-year-old neighbor who was brought over on a cot, and I worked up 68 stings every other day and now is 80 and up dancing. 
By the way, the Arthritis Foundation says there's no proof it really works. Yeah. You know, whatever. Karen Thurlow Kimball came into Stan's life after his son Robert died. I tried to find out the specific date of Robert's death, but there are quite a few Robert Browns. But I'm thinking it was around like the 2000, somewhere around 2000 that he died. What? I looked up Robert Brown, North Yarmouth. No, Robert I knew Brown. a Robert Brown in college. Well, gee, it's such a... Well, no, there. No, I won't go into it, but... It was just what, Bobby me. Brown? <laughs> that was his name, but he wasn't the Bobby Brown of... Um, Boys to Men or whoever, no. whatever he was in. So I'm not sure when he exactly died, but, but Karen and Stan Brown started working together in 2009. Karen Thurlow Kimball had been a beekeeper herself for many years. According to her biography on the site Unique Main Farms, and this biography appears to be written in 2012. Can I ask a clarification question? Yes. So his son had an interest in beekeeping, yes, helped died. him, yes. and died. And so Karen was there to help him. We, I'm getting to that. Okay, well, I, I just wasn't sure what the connection yes. was. Okay. Karen lived in the North Shore area of Massachusetts. I couldn't find out if she grew up there or just spent a lot of her young adult life there. I don't know where she was born, but she was a Mi'kmaq heritage mm. uh, Native American. When she was a young girl, Karen learned beekeeping from a woman with a hundred hives who needed help after the death of her husband. Karen didn't get money for the help, but was given beekeeping equipment and two hives. Then in the late 1970s, Karen caught a swarm of bees and started her own hives, learning along the way with help from the Essex County Cooperative Extension. She didn't earn a living as a beekeeper, which most people don't. She worked as a veterinary technician, a dog groomer, uh, with livestock, and she was a certified animal massage therapist. Oh! In 1995, Karen moved to Maine and married lobsterman Merrill Kimball, who was known as Mike. Mike had 100 traps, and Karen helped him with the business part of the operation and sometimes helping on the boat. I didn't find specifics about how Karen Thurlow Kimball and Stan Brown met, but I'm assuming through his shop and the beekeeping community in general, which is a fairly small community. Where did she and her husband live? She lived in uh, North Yarmouth, oh, okay. and Stan lived in Cumberland, and it, it, they're only about probably 10 minutes apart, yeah. their houses. Karen helped Stan, not just with the beekeeping aspect, but also the business itself, setting up a website for the farm and a Brown's Bee Farm Facebook page. She loaded the website with instructional photographs and videos and a lot of helpful information for beekeepers. She also helped market and advertise the farm. Karen and Stan were known as sideliners, which is a name for beekeepers who keep more than 50 hives. Mm. At the time of the biography in, on the Unique Farms website, said she herself maintained over 50 hives. I'm not sure how many Stan had by then, but he was looked up to as the apiary to go to with questions. Karen was also known as an expert. Stan kept his hives at local farms and orchards where the bees kept, helped pollinate crops. He would travel around and tend them. He had been removing them seasonally. He'd take them out in the fall and put them back in the spring. But with Karen's help, they worked out a strategy with the farmers to allow them to keep the hives there year-round, which made his life a lot easier. And I'm telling all this stuff about Karen just so people can see that she wasn't just a dilettante who started hanging out with Stan to steal his beekeeping business. She was quite a help to him. When he met her, he was in his 80s, and he didn't really have much help with his business mm. or his beekeeping. And I assume it's a physically taxing... Yeah, well, you know... I would think. Stan's late son's widow, Elizabeth, or Libby Adams, helped with the shop sometimes, but not with the actual beekeeping. She did the bookkeeping and stuff. 
Once Karen came on board, she, Karen, helped with a lot of the physical stuff, as did her son Damon, who is an adult. I'm not quite sure of her age, but I think she's like in her 60s, about the same age as Stan's kids would have been, or are. Stan's kids did not seem to be fans of Karen. Mm. On August of 2012, Libby Adams, the daughter-in-law, called the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. Karen Thurlow Kimball had caught Ann Brown, one of the daughters, in the honey shop taking a Brown's Bee Farm sign that was displayed in the shop's office. Ann had previously taken a sign from the garage without permission. The shop was like, there was a picture of it in one of the newspaper articles, and I think it's gone now because I drove by that where it had been. It was like, it looked like kind of like a garage with a, like a door on the side. It was kind of shabby looking. Ann Brown lived across the road from the shop on Honeycomb Drive, which is no longer called that. It's Mm. called Apple something drive, Apple Tree Drive or something. She told the sheriff the signs belonged to her, but Stan Brown said she wasn't supposed to be there. And in the police report about the matter, Libby, the daughter-in-law, said Ann was trespassing. It doesn't seem that anything legal came from the incident or, you know, it doesn't seem like it went farther right. than that maybe he dropped charges i wonder and, why she wanted the sign and stan brown eventually mended fences with his daughter i think because it was decorative i don't know oh. but for years stan's children felt that karen was taking advantage of their father Ann brown later told the portland press herald that stan brown had dementia and though he was still in good shape physically he was he was losing cognitive functions and karen was exerting undue influence on him mm. On Karen's LinkedIn profile, she called herself the owner of the bee farm. And in some interviews with different beekeeping-related publications, she made it sound like she was running the operation, sometimes to the dismay of others in the beekeeping community. Many customers and students of Stan Brown still assumed he was the one in charge. But how can people really know what's going on behind the scenes? Or what business arrangement they had? That's true. On Sunday, October 6, 2013, Karen, her son Damon, and Karen's husband, Mike Kimball, arrived at the Browns Bee Farm Shop with a truck and a minivan. She was there to pick up about two dozen jars of honey. This was honey that belonged to her. She had gathered it from the hives and processed it over the months. The jars weighed about 50 pounds each and were worth about $6,000. Wow. So they weren't like little jars. They were big. Wow. I don't know if they're really jars or buckets. They call them jars. but Maybe that's just, but that's a lot of that's why honey. Were, that's why honey. there were two vehicles. But no, I'm just saying $6,000. That's yeah, but a uh, It's a lot of work. Maybe we should get into a beekeeping. No. Yeah. By the way, if you were wondering... I found out one hive can generate about $250 per year. So 50 hives can be worth about $9,500. Okay. That's the retail price, about $5 a pound. It doesn't take into account the amount of work it takes to process the honey. No. I have no idea what that takes hours-wise and all that. But bottom line, it's a labor of love. And you aren't going to get rich unless you're a marketing genius like Roxanne Quimby of mm-hmm. Burt's Bees. Burt's Bees, yeah. On this Sunday afternoon, the tension between Stan Brown's children and Karen Thurlow Kimball had reached a boiling point. The children had discovered that Stan had recently changed his will to leave his beekeeping business and four acres to Karen, not them. Mm. The children had sent Karen an email telling her if she was going to inherit the business, she would have to work regular hours there. And I'll have to cut in to say it's not their place You're right. to tell if her she, anything. First of all, I can see him giving her the business because she's the only one who gives a shit about the beekeeping. Second of all, once it's hers, yeah, they can go fuck themselves. I'm just saying. I know. That past August, Stan's daughter, Kathleen Kelly, had taken over the power of attorney from Libby Adams, his daughter-in-law, so Mm. like two months before. 
Stan Brown was in his house with his daughter Kathy, her husband Leon, Kathy's son Craig, and daughter Robin when the two vehicles pulled up to the shop, which, as I said, was a shabby green garage. And it was probably about 200 feet from his house. His house was kind of behind right. it. Stan was recovering from an illness. When told of the trio's arrival, apparently told Kathy and her husband that he didn't want Karen and Mike in the shop. Stan later told the Press Herald, I told Leon not to let anyone into the shop, and Mike wanted to get in there and get something out of there. I told him, Kimball, meaning Kimball, two or three times over the last couple of years to stay away from my shop. Stan told the Press Herald that Mike Kimball was, quote, troubled, and in the past had gone into the shop and took, quote, tools, bee supplies, or anything else he could sell. And honestly, I couldn't find any other information to back up that claim Mm. that Mike Kimball had ever done that. Leon Kelly drove from Stan's house to the driveway of the honey shop and got out of his car to confront the three. It was like 200 feet away. Yes. Then the series of events seems to change depending on who is telling the story. But in the end, Leon Kelly was on the ground dying from a gunshot wound. Wow. Dying from gunshot wounds, I should say. The person who fired the gun, a thirty-eight caliber Ruger, was Merrill Kimball, known as Mike. Leon Kelly had been married to Kathleen Brown since 1999. It was a second marriage for both, or relationship. She might have not been married before, but she had kids from a previous relationship. According to the Press Herald, the two met when they both worked for M.W. Sewell, a heating oil company. He is a driver and she in the office. Leon was a large man, six foot four and 285 pounds. But according to all who knew him, he was easygoing and didn't use his size to intimidate. Mm-hmm. And I am not going to use the phrase, what phrase do you think? Gentle, gentle giant. Gentle giant, yeah. That's what people called him. Yeah. Very surprised. A veteran of the Vietnam War, he was no longer interested in guns. His younger brother Bill told the Press Herald, We used to shoot skeet, but when I asked to go out, he said no. He just didn't like guns anymore. Mm. Leon decided to become sober in his 20s and was about to celebrate 34 years of sobriety. His friend from Alcoholics Anonymous, Ray Kane, told the Press Herald, quote, Leon was going to get his 34-year chip in AA. The day before Leon was shot, my son called and said, I'm going to call Leon on Monday and go to the meeting with him and see him get his chip. Then Sunday, he got that call, and then the guy started crying. To mm. Leon's son, Brian Kelly, told the Press Herald, From the time I was a little kid, I can remember waking up in the middle of the night and the phone ringing. Somebody from the program would be having a hard time, somebody sideways drunk. At 1, 2 in the morning, he'd make them a cup of coffee, and he'd sit there and talk all night. Brian also said he was a really loving father, and he was very open about it. He never held back that he loved anybody. He was a big guy, but he wasn't afraid to show affection. Leon gave up driving the oil truck after he lost a kidney to cancer. He went back to lobstering, which he had done growing up, being a native of Five Islands, which is off the Georgetown Peninsula in Maine. Kathy helped him with his 400 traps. According to Bill Kelly, quote, she was a stern man. And I guess a stern man is somebody that drives the boat. Oh, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> drives the boat. <laughs> he operates the hey, boat. we're inlanders. <laughs> we're flatlanders. No, we're not flatlanders, but, well, maybe you are. When he married into the Brown family, he, Leon got along great with his father-in-law, Stan, and raised Kathy's children as his own, even adopting one of them. Leon and Kathy stopped by Stan's on weekends often. Brian Kelly said Leon, quote, thought a lot of Stan and loved Kathy to death. If Stan says he doesn't want that guy here, meaning Mike, Leon would have had no hesitation protecting Stan and the business. I just wonder why he had to drive 200 feet. 
Because some people have to do this. What our governor used to be. Yeah, that's true. Not Janet. The one before. He used to be driven across the street. Brian also said, quote, My father was not a confrontational person. He could diffuse anything by making light of a situation. Brian told the Press Herald that his father was a good judge of character and must have sensed something about Mike Kimball that caused him to react so against his gentle nature. But Mike Kimball's acquaintances couldn't believe the story they heard about him shooting another man. Mike was also a lobsterman, keeping his boat at Yarmouth Marine, a marina run by Deborah Delp. Deborah told the Press Herald, quote, Mike is a good friend and a great customer. He's 70 years old and he's still lobstering. He's just a real hard worker. Mike was an advocate for his fellow lobstermen and fishermen, dealing with both Senators Susan Collins and Angus King about the need to dredge the town harbor in Yarmouth. Main Marine Patrol Officer Thomas Whale <laughs> said that in the 18 years he's covered the southern Maine coast, he never had issues with Mike except maybe little things like being short of flares or life jackets. Whale did tell the newspaper that Mike had the nickname Mike the Knife, which was due to some kind of conflict with other lobstermen about territory decades earlier, which leads me to believe like maybe he was cutting people's lines yes. or he was accused it of had, it. Yeah, it would Mike have had to have been something like that. And recently, another lobsterman threatened to come aboard Mike's boat and attack him. But that issue was resolved by police, not by whale. So he didn't know much about it. But disputes among lobstermen are not uncommon. No, and someday not. we should do a, it's a, a volatile about that. industry. Yes. Uh, Mike Kimball had no criminal record. Mike Kimball's first wife, Nan Jordan Kimball, was a schoolteacher in Yarmouth. She died of cancer in 1988. She has a playground dedicated to her on North Road. Full disclosure, Hannah's played there. A few mm. times. Mm. Mike Kimball was a member of the Lions Club who donated $15,000 to build that playground. It's a nice playground. As I said before, he married Karen Thurlow in 1995. The Press Herald reported that Mike and Karen have four grown children, but I, it wasn't clear if, if they meant together or if, right. if they were blended. I would if say if they all. had four grown children, it would have been blended because if they married in 1995 and this be happened in 2012... I mean, 1995. Oh, yeah. Somebody born in 1995 would be 24 right now. You're right. Now, I mean, uh, Meryl or Mike, they they always put Mike in quotation marks. I hate that. Uh, Call them one thing or the other. I know. And Leon Kelly barely knew each other, if at all. I don't think they'd actually ever met. Prior to the confrontation in front of Brown's Bee Farm Shop, no one could even remember them ever speaking to each other, much less having words. Mm. Mike Kimball was indicted by a grand jury. On one count of murder on November 8, 2013, he was never arrested. He appeared in Cumberland County Unified Criminal Court on Thursday, November 14th, pled not guilty. He posted $100,000 bail in the form of property and went home to await trial. And that was quite a controversy. So we'll talk I remember that. that yeah. He was not arrested. He just appeared in court. His bail conditions required him to surrender all his firearms, and he was not allowed to possess or use alcohol, which is common. Mike Kimball had retained the services of defense attorney Daniel Lilly. Oh, Dan Who Lilly. has come up in several of our episodes. Yes. Before the arraignment, Daniel Lilly told news outlets that Mike Kimball was acting in self-defense. Leon and Kelly's brothers, Joe, Joe, I'll call him, and Bill, were at the arraignment. Both spoke with the Brunswick Times record after court. Joe Kelly said, everyone is 100% behind my brother Leon on this. And everyone is just, I don't know how he could actually say that. Yeah, everyone. And everyone is just totally shocked that it is him that this happened to. He got killed doing the right thing. There's no reason why Mr. Kimball couldn't have turned around and left. He'd been asked to leave numerous times. Joe was asked if anything could make things 
was better, and he replied, I don't think anything could happen right now that would make the family glad. It would be nice to see the guy in jail where he belongs. Everyone is just worn out. We want it done and done now, and I know that's just not going to happen. Bill Kelly, the other brother, said, told the, it was the Times record too, I'm sure the Attorney General's office is doing everything they can do to move forward with the case. Bill Stokes, the um. Attorney General at the time, told the Times record, Obviously, we understand their frustration, but the state police in our office made the decision not to make an immediate arrest. Frankly, when these things happen, in many cases, we don't know all the facts. We have to interview witnesses, and if we rush into something without doing a full investigation, we're criticized for not doing a full well, investigation. Well, then why did they take it to the grand jury? So in, the, in cases like this and others, the most prudent thing to do is gather the facts. That's our job, not to make an arrest before we have all the facts. I don't know. Joe Kelly was not happy about Mike Kimball not being charged right away and then being let out on bail after his arraignment. He wrote an editorial in the Brunswick Times record in March of 2014, annoyed that Mike Kimball was out on bail and accusing Bill Stokes of not doing his job. Not, not a good well. move. It wasn't well written. No, there's a surprise. In his essay, Joe Kimball wrote, quote, My brother's killer, Mike Kimball, got to have Thanksgiving with his family. Mm. He's walking around free. Cliché. His lawyer says my brother is, quote, a big scary man with hands as big as baseball mitts. Kimball's attorney was right about the big, but the rest of his statement is a lie. My brother was a kind and gentle man. And I'm going to say before I go on, I mean, as I said, we can talk about all this different stuff after, but it doesn't matter what, what his brother actually was. What matters is, by law, is what the perception of the other person was of his brother who he didn't know. Right. And this I'm not, I'm not saying him. I'm on one side or the other. And on another note, I'm surprised that the Times record would run a column or op-ed or whatever yeah. by someone convicting someone who had not been tried. I know. It's, it, because, well, you should read it. It's because pretty... normally in a newspaper, even though it's an op-ed, even though it's somebody's opinion, you don't run something that says somebody's guilty I know. when they haven't been tried yet. Stan Brown wasn't impressed that Mike Kimball was never arrested. The day after the shooting, the Bangor Daily News quoted Stan Brown as saying the shooting was, quote, a sad mess. Mm -hmm. He went on to say, quote, I think it's pretty rotten. They said they need more evidence. What more evidence do you need? You've got a dead man with three bullet holes in him. What more do they want? Another dead man? It doesn't make any sense at all. Obviously, as we we're going to discuss, it's not the fact that he was shot. It's right. the circumstances. Right. In this case of Mike Kimball shooting Leon Kelly, Bill Stokes told the Times Record that there are so many witnesses, each with a different point of view, and, quote, it was very important we tried to understand as best we could what every witness is saying. The simple facts are these. Leon Kelly confronted Mike Kimball. Some witnesses say Leon shoved Mike. Others say he didn't. Some say that Kimball tried to shove past Kelly. See, this is why it's a pain in the butt, because they're both... K names. And right. In any case, Mike Kimball pulled out the gun he routinely carried and had a license to carry and fired three shots into Leon Kelly's chest. The different stories came out. Can I just say the obvious thing, too? I said it at the end. Okay. Do you know what? I, it's so obvious. If there wasn't a gun. Yes. Yeah. It would have been a shoving match. I was said okay. this at the end. All right. That's why I said we should wait till the okay. end before we discuss right. it. Because there are many things to discuss. But yes. we need to say it. Do right. It. Because it's my flow of the story. Right. <laughs> yes. 
of the story I plagiarized. Right. The different stories. Yeah, I was going to say it's the flow of the person who actually wrote it, not you, but. The different stories came out when all the witnesses testified at trial, which started April 6, 2015, in Cumberland County. On the second day of trial, the Bangor Daily News reported the testimony of Robin Ronsley Dutill, Kathy Kelly's daughter and Leon's stepdaughter. Robin had taken an iPhone video of the confrontation, which was shown to the court along with a photo. She told the court she was at her grandfather's the day of the shooting. You can't see a lot because she's hiding behind a truck. Uh. She said she saw Leon Kelly place his hands on Mike Kimball's arms to, quote, turn him, and he asked him to wait down by the road until the sheriff got there, end quote. Then she heard four shots. Her brother, Craig Ronsley, told her to hide behind Mike Kimball's truck. When cross-examined, she did admit, she told Maine State Police Detective John Haney, that Leon, quote, grabbed Mike, which is different than placing his hands on him. Right. And and I'll say, which is kind of an obvious thing to say, but as I go through all these testimonies, both sides, as as always happens, their side of it is is exaggerated in their which, which just goes to show why eyewitness testimony is not the best yes. evidence. Robin testified, quote, when I saw Merrill, he was pointing the gun at me. I was terrified. She emerged from behind the truck and took a photo showing Leon Kelly lying on the ground, Mike Kimball holding a gun standing about 10 feet away. Karen Thurlow Kimball is also in the frame holding a phone. And they had that in a couple times in the paper, but they cropped it so you didn't see Leon Kelly's body. Robin started a video after the shooting. According to news reports, Leon Kelly moaned in the background. I didn't I didn't want to listen to the... I don't like listening to that kind of stuff, so mm. I, I don't know if it's anywhere online, but I didn't Squish. listen to it. Leon Kelly is moaning in the background, and Robin said to Kimball, I can't believe you fucking shot him. Although it said expletive. I, I'm, yeah. I am guessing that she's... Mike Kimball said, what was I supposed to do? I'm 70 years old. Robin said, do you have a permit for a concealed weapon? Go ahead, get it out. You're not on your property. Now, That's a weird reaction when her stepfather's lying there and dying the, on the, the ground. The other thing I will say about that is, I'm not really on one side or the other, as we'll get to the end, I'll, but she couldn't have been that terrified if she came out and confronted a man holding a loaded gun. Right. Like that. And demanding, and not saying, oh my God, you shot Leon, oh my God, I you think sh- but saying, where's your that. permit? No, weird. what I'm saying is that she's is, not lamenting kind of, over know, the person weird. dying at her feet. Although I don't know if they But getting all was... like amateur lawyer on him. Daniel Lilly asked her if Mike had backed up to the woods as far as he could go before firing, and Robin confirmed that he did back up pretty much to the woods. Robin said that when Mike Kimball pulled into the driveway of the shop that morning, he, quote, looked right at us with a very angry look on his face. Mm. Then Robin testified. That's, that's, there you go. Then He could be just like me, a arresting bitch face. Then Robin testified <laughs> her brother, Craig, stood in front of the shop door and told the three they weren't getting into the shop that day, that they needed to leave, that they were trespassing. But Robin said they said the, the three said they would not leave until the sheriff arrived. Robin told the court that Karen Thurlow Kimball was there to pick up honey, but it did not belong to her and that she, Karen, was stealing from Stan Brown. Kathleen Kelly, Stan Brown's daughter, also testified that day. According to her, Mike Kimball pointed the gun at her son Craig for, quote, what seemed like forever. Kathy Kelly told the court she saw Mike Kimball push her husband. Daniel Lilly, on cross-examination, said, quote, you're sure you saw Mike Kimball push Leon? He was the first person to touch. He started it. 
Kathy said, quote, I couldn't see whether Leon touched him or not before that. Both Kathy Kelly and her daughter Robin testified that they were suspicious of Karen Thurlow Kimball. They knew Stan Brown's health was in decline. They acknowledged that Stan and Karen had a business arrangement, but they didn't like the fact that Karen spent money from Brown's account. And they also told the court that they knew that Stan Brown had left the bee business and four acres of his 10-acre property to Karen in his will. The Kelly branch of the family was not in the will at all. Uh. The two women, along with Leon Kelly and Kathy's son Craig, were at the farm that morning to talk to Stan Brown about serving Karen Thurlow Kimball with a restraining order to keep her away from the shop, the farm, and Stan. Both testified to that fact in court. Under Daniel Lilly's questioning, Kathy Kelly told the court that she had a feeling something was planned. Lilly said, Are you saying you think Mike and Karen planned to go there and shoot somebody? Kathy said, I don't know if it was planned, but they had a loaded weapon. It's not that it was about killing anybody. I just felt that something was off. And I will say here again that something was planned, but it wasn't Karen that was and her husband that were planning it. They were, I mean, they were there to talk to Stan Brown to get him to change his By they, you mean the Kellys. Yes, the yes. Kellys family. And also, as they should know, there are people, people with concealed carry permits have them so they can walk around with their fucking loaded gun all the time. I know. So I, I mean, mean, whether you agree with it or not, why else have one? Later in the trial, Chief Medical Examiner Mark Flomenbaum oh, yeah. testified that any of the three shots that Mike Kimball fired could have been fatal to Leon Kelly. The first bullet went through Leon Kelly's arm and into his abdomen. He had his arm across his like front, kind of. The second bullet went straight into the abdomen, and the third one also did, and through his left lung and lodged in his chest wall. Leon Kelly died of internal bleeding, from multiple gunshot wounds, Flomenbaum testified. Though Mike Kimball did not testify on his own behalf, attorney Nicholas Walsh read in court from the transcript of Mike Kimball's testimony to the grand jury, which took place on November 5, 2013. In his grand jury testimony, Mike Kimball talked about Karen's work with Stan, how she started out being a helper and kind of an apprentice, and how they took, he and Karen took Stan out to dinner sometimes. Mike testified that his wife was, quote, at first helping and learning from him, and then as he got older, she took it over as far as processing the honey and feeding the bees all winter. This past year, she had 50 hives of her own. She was supposed to own the honey because it's the one, she's the one that worked it, taking it off the comb and spinning it in the processor. It took her all year to do it. Mike told the grand jury about the issues with the Kelly family and Karen, how they had been escalating during the summer of that year. He said the day of the shooting, Karen asked him to go with her to pick up the honey, which was worth about 4000 to $6,000. When Mike Kimball described the confrontation to the grand jury, his description about what was said matched the video that Robin Rodsley Dutil had recorded. Mike said he didn't have a way to leave the situation. He wasn't sure if he warned Leon he had a gun, but Mike said, quote, he had to see the gun. Mike said he backed away as far as he could and then fired the gun when he felt he had no other choice. He was asked if he felt like he overreacted. Mike said, no way. I was scared for my safety and my life. That's the only reason I did what I did. I thought I was going to get hurt or killed. I can't run, so I didn't. By meaning I can't run, he, I think he has... He has some kind of leg problems. On the sixth day of trial, Karen Thurlow Kimball testified for the defense. And I got a lot of this information from the Press Herald. A lot of the other trial information was in the Bangor Daily News. And I, frankly, Mm. whoever came up first was what I printed. Karen's testimony was somewhat different than the Kellys. 
According to Karen, Craig Ronsley, Kathy Kelly's son, pushed her against her truck and injured her shoulder and ribs. When Karen's son Damon Carroll tried to defend his mother, Craig Ronsley shoved him as well. Karen also testified that Leon Kelly started shoving Mike Kimball as soon as the two were face to face. There was no introduction, let alone provocation. She said the men had never met before. Quote, Leon started right off pushing my husband, and he kept pushing him backward harder and harder. My husband was backing up further and further, trying to get away from Leon. End quote. She was cross-examination by Assistant Attorney General Matthew Crock. During her testimony, she began to cry. Crockett showed her an enlarged copy of the iPhone photo taken by Robin Ronsley Dutill after the shooting. It showed Leon Kelly lying on the ground, Mike Kimball holding his gun in his right hand, and Karen in the background on the phone as she called 911. I think she called 911 before the shooting because the shooting is on the call. Right. It's on one. It said it's on, it's very bad reporting. It yeah. says it's on a 911 call, right. and I don't know if she's the only one. It seems to be somebody should have called 911 at the beginning of this conversation. Right. And I don't think they did until it started. Well, if they said they weren't leaving until the sheriff got there, somebody must have called 911. I'm assuming that. Yeah. Crockett indicated that Mike Kim, but no one re really reported it very well. Right. Crockett indicated yeah. that Mike Kimball had retreated about 35 feet on the gravel driveway, and behind him were a few more feet of grass and then trees. He asked Karen several times why Mike shot instead of continuing to retreat, which if I were her, I would have said, I'm not him, so I don't know. Right. Karen said, quote, I don't know how much he could have backed up or not backed up. What I know is that in his physical condition, he has a hard time moving. Karen testified that on the morning of the shooting, she spent part of the morning working in the honey shop with Stan Brown. She finished processing the honey, and then she went home. She got a phone call from Craig Ronsley, which she characterized as threatening. He told her things on the farm were, quote, going to change. Mm-hmm. After getting that call, Karen called Libby Adams. Libby, if you remember, was the former wife of Stan's late son, Robert. She was the bookkeeper for the shop. When Karen spoke to Libby, Libby told her that the Kellys were planning on changing the locks on the shop. Karen testified, quote, she said, get your honey out of there. Libby was on Karen's side of the conflict, mm -hmm. which maybe why she no longer had power of attorney mm -hmm. although i hadn't read that anywhere i'm just guessing right um that she was kind of frozen out mike kimball was confident that he would be found not guilty so confident according to the mm -hmm. press herald mm -hmm. reports that he rejected a plea that would have mm -hmm. found him guilty of manslaughter instead of murder which would have been four to six years mm -hmm. or something on wednesday april 15th 2015 the jury found mike kimball guilty of murder after deliberating for eight hours over two days the press herald said mike appeared stunned and karen's wife started to cry the bangor daily news said karen hugged him before he was let off in handcuffs and daniel Lilly turned to karen and told her quote i'm sorry you know that i did the best i could we've got a good issue on appeal the jury had deliberated for about four hours on tuesday when they came back to the courtroom wanting to hear the 911 audio once more according to the bangor daily news the three shots that killed leon kelly were clearly heard in the background and as i said it wasn't clear in the news reports who made this call was it the one karen was on or did someone else call Attorney General John Alsop told the jury the 911 audio was the most important evidence in the case. Daniel Lilly, Mike Kimball's lawyer, told the Press Herald, quote, I don't get in shock too much because I've been in this business so long, but this is a shocker. Of course, Lilly planned to file an appeal. Mm -hmm. Justice Roland Cole ordered that Mike be held without bail pending sentencing. Assistant Attorney General John Alsop told the Press Herald, quote, We're pleased with the verdict and we're satisfied justice has been done. 
People have the right to carry firearms, but the law only provides for the use of firearms in defense in very limited and particular circumstances, and this is not one of them. Yeah. And I want to say we'll talk about that at the end. Okay. <laughs> It's like you can read my mind. I can read your mind. Outside the courthouse after the verdict, Bill Kelly told the media, the jury saw through the deception. And I just want people to know my brother is missed by the community. I was ready for anything. It was in God's hands. And it came out the way it's supposed to. Well, if God's deciding, then why do they need the court system? No kidding. Daniel Lilly also spoke to the media as he left court. Quote, I'm shocked because I thought the case was a question of manslaughter. Hung jury, possibly guilty of manslaughter, but more likely not guilty. It Did just, the jury have a choice between murder? I'm I don't, sorry. I'm not clear because I, it, it seems like they did, but they, they didn't report it very well. Yeah, fucking It seemed to reporters. me that the relative sizes of the two people made it clear that my client was in a jam. He couldn't get out of it except she's a firearm. As I said earlier, this is me talking, Leon Kelly was about 285 pounds and 6'4". Mike Kimball was about 5'10 and 115 pounds lighter. And I think I said Leon Kelly was, what, 60, 67? Yeah, 60? and Mike Kimball was like 70. 70. So yeah. the, the age wasn't, it was more of the size. Right. During his closing argument, Dan Lilly reminded the jury that even Robin Ronsley Dutel and Craig Ronsley had told police that Mike Kimball was, quote, terrified and, quote, a scared old man. Mm-hmm. The Press Herald reported that Dan Lilly wanted to bring the jurors back into the courtroom for further instruction while they were deliberating. He wanted the judge to make sure the jury understood that extreme anger or fear can be considered provocation for the use of deadly force. That is the specific language in the law. The judge rejected the request. Justice Cole said the case was presented as a classic self-defense case and giving them instruction would just that instruction would just confuse them. Two months later, on June 4th, Merrill Kimball, Mike, was in court again, dressed in an orange prison uniform to find out his fate. Mm, those orange prison uniforms. Justice Cole sentenced him to 25 years in prison, the minimum sentence allowed by law, uh. but essentially a life sentence for the 72-year-old. As reported by the Bangor Daily News, Mike addressed the Kelly family at the sentencing, saying, quote, You don't know how sorry I am about this whole mess. I apologize to you. I didn't know what else to do. That's all I can say. Kathy Kelly recalled how, as her husband lay dying, she asked him not to leave her. Quote, he was a big man with a big heart, a big spirit, and a big laugh. Before sentencing, Daniel Lilly moved for a new trial and an acquittal. He said he wasn't able to present all the evidence of what was going on behind the scenes with the family. He said, this is not a cold-blooded murder where somebody went out and killed a person they didn't even know over containers of honey. Of course, that makes no sense. AAG John Alsop wanted a longer sentence than the minimum, saying the defendant's lack of remorse and empathy in this case is significant, which I think is bullshit. Yeah, it's bullshit. They, I think it's kind of a feather in their cap to get the longest sentence yeah, possible. Yeah, I think so. Lily said, quote, frankly, it's not that he's not remorseful. He feels terrible about what happened, but he felt he had no choice. Justice Cole rejected Lily's request and said, it's a tragedy and it's certainly senseless. The question I would ask is, if Mr. Kimball had said, I have a gun, don't come forward or I'll shoot, the outcome may have been different. According to the Bangor Daily News, at this point, when Justice Cole said that, Kimball spoke sharply, this is a quote from the Bangor Daily News, spoke sharply to Lily's associate, Andrew Graham, saying, I said that. <laughs> in his grand jury testimony, he didn't say that he said that. Mm. So, Did anyone ask him? Yes. In the grand jury testimony, he said he wasn't sure if he had said, but he had to have seen the gun. Remember? Right. 
So even as Justice Cole seemed to side with the prosecution, he also said, this is not the usual history for someone who is charged with murder. My hands are tied. The legislature has set the sentence, a minimum mandatory sentence, that can be imposed for murder. Stan Brown died before knowing the fate of the husband of his former friend and helper about a couple weeks before the sentencing. Mm. He died on, May, as I said, May 22nd. Kathleen Kelly filed a wrongful death suit against Mike Kimball on May 21st, 2015, which was the day before Stan Brown's death. Her lawsuit said that Karen, Mike, and Damon were on Brown's property illegally and without permission. The lawsuit says Kimball was careless and negligent in drawing his weapon and firing at Mr. Kelly. I looked online everywhere to see if there was a resolution to this lawsuit, and I could not find one, so I don't know if it's still Why going to Why file a wrongful death suit when the guy's being convicted? Because she wants money, oh. and it's his property and stuff is right. worth money. It was against his house, right. his property. On May 24, 2016, Mike Kimball filed an appeal to the Supreme Judicial Court of Maine. The appeal was based on three things. Number one, that the judge would not instruct the jury about the affirmative defense at of adequate provocation. That is, if you are extremely frightened or angry, angry that may support a claim of self-defense. I don't like the anger part because it's like, yeah. I can see frightened. Two, that the prosecution said Mike Kimball had been drinking. And I didn't mention that, but they made a big deal about he had had two drinks or something, that he mm. was drunk. Um, but the prosecution said that since he was drunk, Karen shouldn't have brought him to the potentially volatile situation knowing he carried a loaded gun. Well, did they know he was drunk? They say Karen knew. Yeah. Three, well, well, I mean, they maybe was they, there any proof he was drunk, I guess? No, he right. had like two drinks. Right. Three, a lot of the evidence about the family issues, background about the family issues, was not allowed at the trial. Mm -hmm. The appeal was rejected and Mike Kimball is still in prison. Daniel Lilly died March 11th, 2017 at the age of 78. After the verdict, but prior to the sentencing, the Portland Press-Herald had a piece about the self-defense strategy. They quoted Andrew Bronca, a lawyer in Massachusetts and author of the book, The Law of Self-Defense. He estimated that 95% of self-defense cases don't hold up. He quote, these kinds of self-defense cases are really hard to sell to a jury. You've killed someone and there has to be a damn good reason for that, end quote. Jim Burke, who knew both Stan Brown and Karen Thurlow Kimball because he himself is a beekeeper, is a professor at the University of Maine Law School. He said he didn't blame Daniel Lilly for not trying harder to get Mike Kimball to take the manslaughter plea agreement, quote, this jury saw a well-presented case done by competent lawyers, and they came up with a decision. That's how the system works. You never know. You just plain don't. So it's a matter of calculated risk. It says it's the client's decision whether to take a deal or go to trial, and there's only one way to know what the right decision was, and this was to turn down the deal and get the verdict. Mm -hmm. If you take the deal, you never know if it was the right decision because you never get the verdict. One thing the prosecution repeated over and over again to the jury is that Mike Kimball went to the farm with his loaded gun, knowing that there might be trouble. Karen knew that the Kellys were planning on changing the locks and knew that they were trying to get her out of Stan's life. John Elsop, the prosecutor, said that Mike had room to keep backing up. By Maine law, a self-defense law, states that if you think you are about to be attacked with deadly force or force that will cause serious injury, you must retreat as far as you can until you feel that you can't safely retreat further. Only then do you have the legal right to use deadly force. Portland attorney J.P. DeGrini told the Portland Press-Herald, you can preemptively punch someone in the face if you think they're going to punch you, but you can't shoot them. There's no duty to retreat in the non-deadly force scenario. 
Another defense lawyer, Luke Rue, told the Press Herald, self-defense cases can be tough because in a way you can see that your guy committed the act, that he was justified. It's very rarely going to be a slam dunk. A lot of people will claim to me that they acted in self-defense, and when you get into the facts of what happened, there's often a fine line in the client's mind between self-defense and retaliation. It's not a clear path to a win in self-defense. Andrew Branca said in the article that Maine is only one of 16 states that requires someone to use up every option for retreat before being able to use deadly force. The other 34 states have stand-your-ground type mm-hmm. laws. While they don't require you to retreat, it can be used against you. Like in Florida, it can be. But in Texas, it's not. it can't be used against you. If you don't retreat, you right. don't have to retreat. The Press-Herald article points out that in all states, regardless of the stand-your-ground issue, they all have the same five basic principles when it comes to claiming self-defense. One, deadly force can only be justified if someone is facing deadly force or reasonably believes it. Two, there was no provocation in the defendant's behalf. Three, the need to defend oneself is imminent. Four, deadly force is necessary, and five, deadly force can't be avoided. As Andrew Branca pointed out, it's relatively rare to get a legitimate good guy defense. Prosecutors don't like to bring cases to trial unless they really believe they're going to win. If a self-defense case is robust, it usually does not go to trial, which is true. The case was a complicated one. On one hand, I really feel for Karen Thurlow Kimball. I think she was being treated unfairly by Stan Brown's family. I think Stan was confused and being told stuff from his own family that wasn't mm-hmm. true in order to turn him against her. I feel like Leon Kelly was a nice guy that people liked, and he got drawn into the drama in order to protect his family. Mm-hmm. Mike Kimball was also trying to protect his wife, her reputation, and her livelihood. But bottom line, if there was no gun that day, no one would be dead, and That's no one right. would be in prison. However else, all that other stuff would have played out. Right. That is the fact. Right. It was the loaded gun. But I also feel like when you look at these five tenets of the the self-defense, I don't think he was facing deadly force. He may have been frightened. Yeah. I don't think he provoked it. Right. I, he may have had the need to defend himself. But I don't know if the well, number one and deadly force was necessary. But I do think that he didn't need to, obviously, he didn't need to use his gun. Right. I don't understand why it was brought as a murder case. I think right. it should have been manslaughter. And there was talk about it being, before they ever charged him, what, that everyone thought it was going to be charged as manslaughter. Right. I don't know why it was ever charged as murder. Right. I think maybe they thought... that Matt isn't here. Right. He will be soon. I think possibly, you know, after he was indicted but not charged, the prosecution may have seen the vitriol against him. I think the Times record running an op-ed convicting the guy. It um, was a weird op-ed, too. He he complained, and I didn't want to read it. Right. There wasn't a lot in it, but he complained that Bill Stokes wasn't doing his job yeah. and that Bill Stokes See, wasn't, I wasn't, I don't char- wasn't why charging him or but, didn't arrest him because of he was a, right. a higher uh, class. But, but obviously that inflames people. It's not like they changed venue, so they're trying it right in that area. But... I always felt, I kind of felt when it happened, because the paper I worked for at the time was connected to the Press Herald, so we were running those stories, and I had to, like, edit them before they went in, and they were as confusing then as they are now. I always felt like, one thing it's hard to get in a trial or in a journalistic narrative is the underlying stuff that was going over. The Kelly family was inflamed that morning. Yes. And uh, they went out, they went down there to, they went, why did four people go down there? Right, and... Karen and Mike Kimball were 
nervous because the shit was going on. So there's that whole underlying dynamic going on that would make people more on edge mm-hmm. than if it were this normal innocuous situation. The other thing is I, I've always felt and felt like enough attention wasn't given to this. Whatever Stan Brown, whatever his family was convincing him of at that moment, he was leaving the business to her. She worked in the business with him. She was basically running the business. The stuff was hers. So she had a right as far as oh, I can. And I didn't I didn't have this in, I forgot to put this in my thing. In my research I had an article about the civil suit. She had actual proof that the honey belonged to her. Right. And she and I think some of that came out because I'm remembering that. Mm-hmm. But I always felt like at the time she had a right to be yeah, there and get her stuff. She and wasn't trespassing. And I don't blame her for wanting to get her friggin' stuff before and, they changed well, locks. The fact that her sister in law was on her side. Right. And also, honey. I mean, not her sister in law. Honey the, can't just sit. That honey would have been worthless if it had sat there for a while. Mm-hmm. She had to get it. I'm, I'm not saying that justifies the shooting. I agree with you. No loaded gun. No, but I don't think he brought it with the intention. Well, there's two things. I don't think he brought it with the intention, I'm going to shoot somebody. No, I, I think, don't think he so. said, my, my wife and her property are under siege, so she needs to be protected. Well, I think- but I also feel like, and I've always felt like this, if you're walking around with a loaded gun, yes. and I know people with concealed carry permits who it, walk around with their yes. fucking loaded I guns. Know somebody, I know people that do it, it, Sooner or later, you want to shoot something. It's like the old cliche saying, when you hit, carry a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail. So, you know, Leon Kelly probably could have beaten the shit out of him, and maybe he would have. But the other thing is... Are you supposed to let yourself, if you're some skinny little old disabled guy, are you supposed to let some big guy beat the shit out of you? I know. I I don't know. I think it's weird it was a murder. And I feel, but I feel like those underlying subtle things and the fact that Dan Lilly wasn't able to bring those into court well, affected. Well, obviously it wasn't no. just about $6,000 worth of honey. That, I mean, like Dan Lilly said, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I never... For people to... But I will say, too, I said this to somebody... Somebody on Twitter said something about how I'm going to get a gun. I'm sick of... You know, it was somebody that was sick of something, and they said they're going to get a gun. And she was serious about it. And I said, are you are you prepared to kill somebody? I said, it's not inevitable, but it's something you got to think about. And a bunch of people jumped down my throat for saying that. And I'm like, I'm not saying that you're going out looking to kill somebody, but if you're carrying a gun and a situation comes up, it's more likely you're going to kill somebody than if you're not carrying a loaded gun. You know what I mean? You can do whatever you want. You're, yes, you're legally. Well, that's the whole thing. You have a legal right to do it. But if you have it with you, this kind of situation ended with a death. Right, and I agree with you. If if you have a loaded gun, for whatever reason, you not only have to be prepared to shoot somebody, but you have to be prepared to face the consequences. Why else have the loaded gun? Why have it? It's either going to be used against you or you're going to have to shoot somebody. But there are consequences to shooting a person. And it really is a tragedy because the yes. two men did not know each other were simply like, I, I feel like Leon his- was pulled into it and he he really probably felt there was an and injustice being done. And who knows what he was told that wasn't true. Because I always go back to back when this was going on. She was part of the business. She was getting her property how she had a right to do that. And 
Stan was leaving the stuff to her in the will. And why wasn't he leaving anything to his other, you know, right? And the thing that I found interesting in the reporting, and the other two daughters didn't come into it at all, except for that one daughter that took the signs. But other than that, she wasn't in the story at all. So there were two other daughters that I'm assuming got the other part of the property. Because the property that Karen was supposed to get was, according to Dan Lilly, it was just swampy, four acres of swampy that the bees um, were on. I don't know for sure. He has a right to leave whoever he wants, whatever he wants. And if he did have dementia, and like some of the comments he made, like him about Mike Kimball, that, you know, there wasn't a lot of reporting about him because he wouldn't talk to the press. But he doesn't sound like the type of person that is going to go into a bee shop and steal shit to sell. I know. He had 400 traps. Right. He was well known. He, and who knows, maybe his family was saying, Dad, yes. he's stealing shit yes. from you. So you. And one thing that bugged me at the time, it reminded me when you were doing your report, is there were things reported, I felt they were kind of being reported almost as fact, that were somebody saying something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, just because somebody's saying something doesn't mean it's true. I know. What are the facts and what aren't they? If Mike was stealing stuff, did anyone ever report it to the police? I know this. And the Press Herald could have said, I mean, they said he had no criminal record, but they could have asked to find out if there were reports I know. made of things missing because it seems to me that family wasn't going to let that happen without reporting it. I mean, well, the sister who stole the signs was the police were involved. And it was, it was funny because it was... When I first read, I read it, I didn't realize. I wondered where the sister-in-law stood because she she did the bookkeeping. So when I first read that part, it, it was Karen that caught her. But then the sister-in-law is the one that called the police. Right. So it makes you wonder. Right. But. So there's always, I always felt there was way more to it. And, and it's sad that right. it's it's so stupid. I know. I mean, it's it, another stupid, senseless people. You know, a, a nice guy who was yeah. uh, everybody loved got killed. Right. And then this man's in prison, and he probably does feel. But I think he has remorse. I don't know why. Why they always say that that they don't yeah. have remorse. I know. You know. But anyway, thank you. That was a very interesting main case. So today we're not going to have recommendations because we spent so much time talking about plagiarism. We will have some next time. Which we don't recommend. Right. We don't recommend plagiarizing. And for you Patreon supporters, if you are looking for recommendations, our newsletter is will be out before this. You'll have gotten our newsletter that will have some recommendations in it. Obviously shorter and not as in depth (laughs) as we go on on the show. I'm doing our next story. Yay. Again, if you want to support us on Patreon, we're easy to find. Crime and Stuff Podcast. No, it's crimeandstuffonline.com. Oh, on Patreon. It's crime. Okay. Yes. And we have a link, though, on our... We have some swag. You get a monthly newsletter. And I hesitate to say too much, but we do have a little special project yes. that we're working on that will go to our supporters. Don't get too excited, but um, I'm kind of excited about it. It's, it's kind of a fun thing. And also, your support helps us. Obviously, we're a bare-bones operation. Your support would help us um, sound better, which I think is probably the most important thing. Yeah. Right now, maybe even get out more often. It would be, yeah. In, in some cases, we're, you know, we're working on a shoestring. We do pay now for our Hindenburg software that we record on. We pay for Blueberry hosting. And yeah. obviously, we don't have any ads. Yeah. Which is to your benefit. I think so. Right now, listeners. So, if you'd like to throw two bucks or five bucks a month our way or something, also, you can review us. Yes, please do. If you like us. 
If you don't like us, um, please don't review us. I know. But don't don't do the one yeah. don't do the one star review and, and say that you hate and us. And recommend us to your friends or recommend us on yes. social media. Yes. Yeah. Come say hi on Facebook. Although we don't have a group, we just have a Right. Page. We don't have you a group. You can like us on Facebook. We don't have a group because it's very time consuming to administer a group. Not that yeah. we don't like all you and what But you're, you can, you're welcome to email us. Yeah. And you can send us messages, Facebook messages. Yep. Tweet at us. Yeah. We like it. Yep. We and like it all. So I think that's everything for now. Okay. We'll and see if, you next time. And if oh. you can't and if you're you can't go that long without listening to our voices, you can check out our other podcast. Groovy Tube. Groovy Tube where we're talking about the Brady Bunch. Woo! Yeah. So thanks for listening. Bye bye. Two months later, on June 4th, Meryl Kimball, Mike, was We're in court again. being looked at through binoculars by somebody on that tourist bus. As if. We were. They can't see in here. The lights are on. Oh, big fun. They were both looking at us. I'm just saying, it's not like we're doing anything, but anyway, go on.